Well, good evening. I'm Dave Drum. For those of you that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm excited to be here with you. Um, I have some good news and some bad news. And it has nothing to do with the last two minutes of the football game. See, that didn't tell you anything, Mike. That you're, 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 you're good. Um, uh, we're in the middle of a series here where uh, Pastor Chris invited us to pick a favorite passage and share some words out of that passage. And uh, this is, I was a pastor in a Lutheran church for 21 years, and I can name on one hand the number of series that I did more than once. And this is one of them. The bad news is it was an eight-week series. <clears throat> um, uh, Pastor Chris sent me an email um, yesterday that said that uh, this is true. Um, he sent me an email yesterday that said that there was just a new Guinness Book of World Records set for the longest sermon, 53 hours and 18 minutes. And then at the end of that, he said, don't get any ideas. So I think he was already worried. Um, the uh, ser- sermon length is, uh, is highly cultural. Um, I get to preach in a lot of different churches these days, um, moving around town. And so um, when I'm in some of my sister churches, uh, they like kind of 12 to 15 minutes is, is pretty good. Um, and uh, then I just got a note yesterday, a place I'll be preaching in a couple of weeks, and said, well, you know, a couple hours would be, would be good. So kind of hitting that middle ground is a, a little bit challenging. Um, just one fun story, when we got the whole church together here just a couple of weeks ago for Worship Over Tucson, um, this is an effort that's at Reed Park, it's been going on for many years, the African American churches lead out in it, and so they, uh, they were planning, and so the, the lead pastor, um, I, I was to share the word for, for that service at the park, and uh, the service was scheduled to go for about two hours, and we were already an hour and 45 minutes in. And, uh, and he said to me, it's got to be 10 minutes, because uh, we're supposed to be out of here by 6. It's 5.45. It's got to be 10 minutes. So I'm like, okay, I'll do 10 minutes. So I got up there. I shared for 10 minutes. And when I was done, everybody was like, he's done? He can't be done can't possibly be done. Um, I, I mean, he w- himself was shocked and wasn't ready to come on with the next thing. So I learned that afterwards, and I said to him, oh, when you said 10 minutes, you meant not an hour and a half. You didn't mean 10 minutes. I thought you meant 10 minutes. So who knows how long we're going to go tonight. So that's the good news and the bad news. <clears throat> um, I titled the message, The Church According to Jesus, and uh, after last week, where there was sharing about the vision for the church, I almost changed the title. I sent this to Chris a couple months ago. It sounds so ridiculously presumptuous. Um, some of you have been a part of this church for 40 years. I've been here for a year, and I'm going to preach a message called, well, this is the church according to Jesus, as if you know everything that y'all said was just something less than that. has nothing to do with that. has more to do with the character of the church than it does a specific call or clarity of vision for the church, which is a lot of what we were talking about last week. Um, uh, We did a series on worship. Pastor Chris did a number of those teachings, and um, he he did one on neediness, the need to always remember our neediness. 
And he actually referenced the first verse of what I'm going to share about tonight. So it was right after that I emailed, this is what I, I, I this will complement well. So let's go there. And then last Sunday, Chris was talking about Bartimaeus. And the first thing that he said is that Bartimaeus recognized his need. And the last thing that Chris said is that when he followed Jesus, he followed him as someone who was always aware of his need and continued to ask. And that's um, really, you've kind of already heard the main point of the message. That's what I want to talk about as well. Um, most of my context these days uh, is with a citywide church. And so usually when I'm thinking church, I'm thinking about the whole church in the whole city. And while this applies there, this one probably has its primary application locally. What does this look like right here? Um, one of my favorite passages for years, and the one we're going to share on tonight, is the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And so um, I want to just read the whole thing for us as we get started here tonight. So you can follow along if you have it. But uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I was probably more than halfway through my 21 years at the, at the Lutheran church around the corner and had no clue what that passage was really talking about. <laughs> um, for the longest time, I, I saw the Beatitudes as kind of eight somewhat independent, random statements Probably you could put them in any order and it wouldn't change anything. That's how I'd always seen it. Um, and, and actually, some of them almost, and, and I hope that, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but so I hope it doesn't come out that way, but some of them almost border on ridiculous. <laughs> Happy are the sad. What does that mean? <laughs> Blessed are you when... People are persecuting you, and when everything would seem to indicate that there's no blessing in this at all, it just, it's so upside down, it just, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, I am 
deeply indebted to the ministry of a pastor, David Johnson, leads a church by the name of Church of the Open Door in the Twin Cities area, who wrote a book called Joy Comes in the Morning, and morning is M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Joy Comes in the Morning, that was based on the Beatitudes and is the foundation of that church. And uh, ever since then, it has been one of my all-time favorite passages. Uh, When I was in Tanzania, I was able to share on this text. And so um, it's just, hopefully, you'll have a better appreciation of it as well, in case you're like me and uh, maybe didn't catch some of what Jesus was trying to say. Um, The first surprise is in the very setting of the text itself. Um, The disciples have been following Jesus. They had to have been pretty excited because things are going amazingly well. Jesus is healing everyone. The crowds are growing. The crowds are swelling. And we read in the very beginning, it's easy to pass it up, but uh, the crowds are there. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. (laughs) Says he goes up the mountain where the crowds couldn't follow. the, The 12 followed maybe a few more, but most of the crowds missed this. He wasn't, I'm sure the disciples weren't expecting that, but uh, even more than that, I'm sure they were not expecting the first words to come out of his mouth. This is the first teaching section, the way Matthew puts it together. And so the first words out of his mouth were, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, like I, was, I grew up in the church, um, that maybe strikes you like poetry. It's a, it's a very poetic-sounding statement. But maybe this will help. There are actually two words that Jesus could have chosen from for the word poor. One word refers to somebody who is like begging on the side of the street. So we see them all the time. You drive by, they've got the sign, different flavors and varieties of signs. That would be one word. Somebody who is on the street begging. That is not the word that Jesus chose. The one that he chose is a word for poor that means so destitute, so hopeless, that he's not able to stand on a street corner and beg. This is somebody who will die unless somebody else comes and helps them. Someone who is utterly broken, completely helpless, and entirely incapable of doing anything for himself. Jesus' first words in his big teaching session are blessed are those kind of folks. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think they were expecting that. (laughs) Um, Maybe a great way to illustrate. um, Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember what Jesus told him? sell everything and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And, the, and scriptures tell us that he went away very sad because he had many possessions. 
Well, let's hypothesize for a moment. Let's say that he had actually done that. He sold everything, gave it to the poor, and then came back to Jesus. What do you think Jesus would have said? Would he have said, I want to congratulate you, young man, because you are the first person ever to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Do you think that's what he would have said? I don't think that's what he would have said. I think he would have given him something else to do. And if he'd done that, he would have given him something else to do because the whole point was you can't do it yourself. Until you get to the end of yourself, um, you're not in the category that Jesus refers to here as blessed. Without a Savior, you're not going to be saved. And you can't do it yourself. I think it's completely foundational to the whole understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, as a Lutheran pastor, the verse that was like glued to, to our foreheads was, we are saved by grace apart from works. This is not of your own doing. Any card-carrying Lutheran could recite that verse over and over and over and over again. But see, what Jesus is talking about here is not the right answer on a religion test. He's, He's looking for a way of life. Remember John 15 where he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? I think that's what he meant. <laughs> Apart from him, uh, we, we really can't do anything. You don't ever get to graduate from this one. This is not the, the entrance into the kingdom, and then we get to move on to other things that are better. This is the kingdom. There's only two in here that are um, present tense. All the rest of them, the blessing comes later. Did you notice that? This is one where the blessing is for right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They are experiencing the kingdom of heaven right now. They don't have to wait longer for the blessing. Um, At the Sunday morning service last week, when we were sharing about the vision of the church and so forth, um, there were several comments that just, I just leaned over to my wife at one point and said, I don't even need to come next Sunday. The message is already being preached. But one guy said, well, you know what I love about our church is everybody here, we're all really screwed up. (laughs) Yes, that's it. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that... uh, uh, apart from a Savior, there ain't no saving. If you ain't broke, another way of saying this, Jesus could have said it this way, if you ain't broke, I can't use you. Now that's really good news for those of us who are well aware of how messed up we are. And really bad news for those of us who don't. And that's where it starts. The next one grows right out of it. it. says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
to mourn literally means to show on the outside what's going on on the inside. That's literally what it means to mourn, to show on the outside what's happening on the inside. Um, Another word for it could actually be integrity. Integrity is where the inside and the outside line up well. You're not putting on a show. That's to have integrity, to be connected. The inside and the outside are lining up. Anybody ever have this experience? Um, you're, it's uh, Sunday morning, trying to get ready for church. Um, your, your spouse and you got into a fight last night before you went to bed, and it hasn't completely healed, so you're still a little bit on edge. And the kids have been bickering since the moment that they got up. You get into the car, and all the way to church, the kids are in the back seat. Stop touching me. And so fight, 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 all the way. Everybody's tense. The car pulls into the parking lot. You get out of the car. You walk up. First person says, how are you? What do you say? Fine. (laughs) Isn't that what you say? How are you doing? Fine. I'm fine. That would be the opposite of mourning. Mourning is where we tell the truth. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that if you had a bad day, you need to drop the whole load on the first person that you see when you come in. But one would hope that here tonight, if it's really been a rough week, sometime before we get back in the car and go home, we're able to have a real conversation where we show on the outside what's been happening on the inside. Because that's really kind of what it means to be a broken person. When, When we're broken, there's not a lot of pretense. We're not trying to paint it as if we've got it all together because we know we don't have it all together. That's not even the goal. We need to know that uh, there, we, we have issues. We have challenges. So does everybody else. And so this is a hospital for those who are sick and broken. Um, we are doing a workshop a couple of weeks ago um, for a bunch of pastors. There were about 50 people there. And so one of the guys that got up to speak, first thing he said is, I won't use his name, but he's the local pastor, he, uh, he gave his name, and he says, hi, I'm addicted to porn. That was pretty real. <laughs> um, he did clarify a little bit. He said, now, I haven't actually viewed it in a while, but it's only because I've blocked off all access, and I have accountability on a daily basis, and there's a lot of times where I want to. And that's why I'm addicted. That's what it means to be addicted. And then he went on to talk about some other things. That was pretty refreshingly honest. The church, according to Jesus, is full of real people who are able to talk about what they're really struggling with in appropriate settings so that we can get real saving in the places where we really need saving. 
So blessed are the broken. Blessed are those who mourn. The third one, next one coming up. Let me go ahead and switch it. Blessed, back one. Um, Pastor Chris helped me with the PowerPoint. And we are missing the third one. But it's okay to be broken because that's the whole point. You know, we don't have to be perfect. So the one that is missing (laughs) is blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Um, We have no idea in our present culture what the word meek means. It rhymes with weak, and we think that's what it means. Right? I mean, isn't that one of the first synonyms that might have come to your mind when you heard the word meek? We kind of think it rhymes a little bit with weak. Um, It helps so much to know how the word gets used in other contexts outside of the Bible. You know, one of the contexts that this Greek word gets used, the word here that that, uh, Jesus chose, it's for a wild stallion that has been broken that's meek. It's not weak. The, the best, like, three-word definition for it is strength under control. That's what it means to be meek. It's not weak. It's strength under control, like a wild stallion. Do you know who in the Old Testament it was referred to as the meekest person on the earth? Moses. I don't think weak applies. But it was strength that eventually came to be under control. Not at first. I think what Jesus is saying here is that if you go down into brokenness and mourning, when you start to come up out of that, you'll be meek. You'll have some strength that it'll be under control. Go down into brokenness and mourning, and you'll come up meek. And that will go right into the next one, which we can probably put back up on the slide. Let's see. if There it is. Because the other way that you come up, when you, when you go down into brokenness and mourning and you come up meek with strength that's under control, is you come up as one who is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Have you ever noticed how the Christians who tend to be the most on fire tend to be the ones who just got saved a month or two ago and they recognize and remember all that they got saved from and now they are hungering and thirsting for a better meal than the one that they used to have for so long? And the more in touch you are with how lousy what you used to eat satisfied you, the more on fire you are for the real thing. Isn't that true? When you've had a meal of sand and dust versus a meal of steak, you'd rather have steak. When you're used to drinking vinegar and now you've got fine wine, uh, we'll take the wine, thanks. Those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's like the difference between going to church because it's a nice thing to do and worshiping because what else would you do? 
It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. It's who you are. Why would you want to do anything else? I've been saved. How could I do anything but worship? And it's not limited to an hour on Sunday or Saturday. It's the difference between going to church and being the church, bringing Christ's presence with you everywhere you go. Because it's not just checking off a religious compartment. You're hungering and thirsting for the things of God all the time because that's who you are. Now, if you're honest and you could say, I don't think I hunger and thirst for righteousness 100% of the time. The good news is, that takes you right back to step one. (laughs) You're right back to yet another example of blessed are the broken, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then you turn to Jesus as Savior, you experience his saving, and the whole path starts all over again. With me so far? Four down, four to go. We'll go faster on the last four. Okay. Next one is the first one that starts to talk about how you respond to other people. The first four all have to do with you. This is the first one that has to do with somebody else. And there's a reason why it's fifth and not first. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful people are people who are very well in touch with their own brokenness. They're real. They, they mourn. They, they have integrity. They're not going to try to put on airs like, well, I've got it together. What's wrong with you? They're not going to come across that way. Um, they, they're meek. They have strength, but it's under control. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they want everybody to experience that. Those are the kind of people that you want to meet when you're struggling, isn't it? <laughs> You don't want to meet a self-righteous Pharisee when you're struggling. You want to meet somebody who recognizes there but for the grace of God go I. In fact, I've been there, maybe not that particular example, but a different one. And so it didn't even cross my mind to judge you because I know how messed up I am. Those are merciful people. It's like the difference if you're bruised and and you come into a Christian community just weary and beaten up. It's the difference between rubbing up against sandpaper and being enveloped by a warm blanket. The church, according to Jesus, needs to be filled up with merciful people. It's, It's kind of a warning that that there's a danger of of a maturing church that is not also maturing in brokenness, in the recognition of their need for the Savior. You know, the Apostle Paul, if if you look at his writings chronologically, this is another one of those things somebody else had to point out to me. I'm not that smart. Um, but we can we can know like that Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote. And we can know what some of the last ones are that he wrote. And if you put him in order, the longer that Paul went, the more aware of his sinfulness he became. 
Isn't that interesting? He was maturing in the right way in recognizing his constant need for a Savior. By the end of his life is where he would say, "Um, I'm the worst sinner of the bunch. I think there's also, I think this one is also kind of pointing out a danger of a church that's not doing very well at penetrating the world. If it's been years and years since somebody came to faith for the first time in a Christian community, it's easy to forget how broken and messed up we all are. But when you're seeing the joy of lives going, moving from darkness to light for the very first time, and when that's normal behavior, then it's just a whole lot easier to stay merciful to those who, who need mercy, which would be all of us. I actually had a chance to visit the church that David Johnson um, taught in. And uh, I experienced what he described in his book. And uh, he said, you know, the first time that I felt like our church, it had been a traditional church. And uh, he said, the first time that I felt like we finally were starting to get it was this one Sunday that I'll never forget. And he said, there was a guy that walked into church that Sunday, really rough, tatted, everything else. He was wearing a T-shirt that said, stamp out virginity to church. That was the T-shirt that he wore. And at the altar call, he came forward with tears flowing down his face and was embraced by the community who were full of mercy and able to look past the offensive thing on his t-shirt to see here is another soul in need of a savior just like every one of us. Blessed are the merciful for they'll be shown mercy. Next one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Some of the first ones at first glance may have seemed undesirable, like blessed are those who mourn. How desirable is that? Um, Blessed are the broken. That is not kind of our typical first American choice. This one, I don't know that it seems undesirable, but it seems pretty unattainable. Wouldn't you say? Um, I'm Dave, I'm pure in heart. I mean, you just don't typically talk that way. Um, I think it is attainable because it's not talking about something on the outside. It's talking about a condition of the heart. It's really talking about the first four. Is your heart broken and recognized in need of a Savior? Are you willing to be honest about that? Are you coming up meek and hungering for thirst, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? That's what it means to be pure in heart. It's somebody whose heart longs for the things of God. Peter would be a good example in the scriptures of somebody who was pure in heart. He messed up all the time. He wasn't perfect on the outside. But even when he said, you know, Jesus, even if everybody else denies you, I won't. Well, there was some brokenness missing there. But I think his heart genuinely wanted to faithfully follow Jesus. Um, That's great news. Because you can actually say, I I really do want a, a, a pure heart. I want my heart to be Jesus' heart. Jesus' heart's the only one that's fully pure. Well, it can be in us. 
That's what it means to have a pure heart. I want that. The heart pumping inside of us isn't ours, but it's Jesus. Do you want what Jesus wants? In everything? And willing to pray, search my heart, O God. Know me. Test me. If there's things where I'm not wanting what you want, I want to change. If that's your heart, that's what it means. If not, if you're honest and you say, well, not, not entirely. Step one, blessed are the broken. And then we get to start all over again. Peacemakers. Was anybody in here raised in a home where it was kind of seen as a Christian value to keep the peace at all costs? Anybody have kind of an upbringing where keep the peace at all costs was kind of the way? I'm surprised that there weren't some of us because most Christian environments, that's kind of what we tend to think of. Keep the peace at all costs. Um, Did you notice that Jesus didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers? It's blessed are the peacemakers. And that's way different. It's not talking about keeping the peace at all costs. It's talking about making peace, which means where things are wrong, it has to be made right. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. It's actually blessed are the truth tellers. Peacemakers aren't the subject changers. Ooh, that could get a little bit tough. Can't go there. We're going to, let's change the subject. That's trying to keep the peace at all cost. Peacemakers are ones who take the lid off, look around, say, oh, this stinks. This is terrible. Something's got to change. This is not right. That's making peace. Jesus was a peacemaker. Do you remember what he called the, hypoc- the uh, Pharisees? I just gave that one away. <laughs> Was he making peace when he did that? Well, in, in the truest sense, I believe he was trying to. I think what he was saying was, guys, if you don't take care of your hearts, you're going to hell. And you might throw rocks at me, and you might, uh, you might revile me, you may crucify me, but if somebody doesn't care enough about you to tell you the truth, there is no hope that your illusion of phony spirituality will ever be revealed to you. So in the strongest terms I possibly can, out of love for you that you can't even imagine, I'm going to break the silence, and I'm going to start saying, but nobody else has the guts to say. I think that's a paraphrase of Jesus' words to the Pharisees. And I think it was fully consistent with being a peacemaker, one who was trying to help them experience true peace. You know, there's blind spots that we all have, and unless somebody is willing to point them out to us, we're, uh, we're in trouble. Because you can't see your own blind spot. Somebody else is going to have to show you your blind spot. Um, this is the one place where I just want to make one comment in the citywide church as it re- applies there. Um, you know, every part, if you're connected to the same head, you're in the same body. And every part that's connected to the head cares about some of the things that Jesus cares about. 
um, we need each other because very few care about all the things that Jesus cares about. And so I'll just stereotype it in big, broad strokes. Um, There's a lot of churches that care very deeply about sanctity of life and sanctity of marriage and religious liberty. I care very deeply about all of those things. There's biblical word to be spoken about all those things, sanctity of life and sanctity of marriage and religious liberty. It also happens to line up with one particular political party, but that's just an aside. Because there's a whole other group of Jesus lovers who are very, very deeply passionate about racial reconciliation and justice and and caring for the poor which also just happens to line up with a different political party, but that's an aside. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be equally passionate about all those things? Because the Bible has something to say about all of them, and it's going to take peacemakers to get us there. Say, it's not that what you've been sharing is wrong, it's just not the whole story. There's more. Jesus is always bigger than the boxes that we put him in. I think there's a reason why the peacemaker one is seventh and not first, because you go out there and try this and you aren't broken, and um, they'll never even stumble over the message. They'll stumble over you. If they're going to stumble, at least let it be over the message. When you come across as broken, not because that's the attitude you're trying to project, but because that's who you are, Um, then there's a chance that maybe the truth will be heard. But I do have to let you know that the last one is blessed are the persecuted because if you're a peacemaker, there's a pretty good likelihood that at some point you'll experience persecution. The Prince of Peace was nailed to a cross. As uh, As we come to the table of communion, Um, it's another invitation to come broken in need of a Savior and yet filled with gratitude because here we have a Savior who saves us. Nothing that we do to deserve it. So let's pray as we prepare our hearts to come and receive. Lord Jesus, thank you that um, that you embodied grace and truth perfectly in harmony together and that your teaching, like none other, um, puts things that would appear to be opposites together so that we get new insight into who you are and who you've called us to be. Help us to be the kind of people, help us here at the vineyard to be the kind of church that reflects your character and your teaching and your call. God, thank you for your grace, thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name.